Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, I'm Anthony Fury. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of Full Comment. Scientific research that can make our lives better, and in some cases even save our lives, is being hampered by political correctness that is enforced by government rules and institutions and it's only getting worse. That's not my opinion, though. It's what an increasing number of scientists are stepping forward to say, including our next guest, who has a story that you've got to hear. Dr. Patanjali Kambampati, a professor in the chemistry department at Montreal's McGill University, joins us now. Hello, Professor. Welcome to the program. Hello, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well, thank you. It's been an interesting couple of weeks or an interesting week or two, but uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, no kidding. And, and I really want to talk to you about uh, about those couple weeks. Well, I want to talk to you about what happened before uh, leading up to all of this, but uh, you have had a scenario where you have twice now been rejected by grants. The first time it happened, you didn't want to speak out about it. Now it's happened a second time. You've decided you needed to go public. Tell us about these grants that you've been applying for? Let's see, about a year ago, I applied for a federal grant called the National Frontiers Research Fund, and that was a new grant application. And what they had done as a new grant application is make equity, diversity, and inclusion, EDI, their primary mission statement and science, a secondary mission statement, so that if you did not fulfill their EDI mission statement requirements, they would not send your proposal to scientific review. So that's what happened to me about a year ago. And that was the first time that ever happened to me in my life. That was the first time I've ever had a proposal vetted based upon EDI as opposed to science. So the the primary prism you're saying this is th- th- this was basically the the driving thing you're saying this comes before whatever it is the actual research project is precisely so in a proposal you might write 5 10 15 50 pages on the science and there's an ancillary amount that you might write about all the benefits to society and industry that might be a page but more recently they've added you might add a paragraph or a page or however long you want to describe how you're going to make the world a more equitable, inclusive, and diverse place in science. And if you don't do that, we won't even look at your science. So that happened a year ago, and it happened a month ago in a second proposal that was sent to NSERC, Natural Sciences uh, and Engineering Research Council of Canada. So that proposal was also rejected on EDI grounds. Apparently, I can reapply if I rewrite my EDI section, but the key point is, 
I was judged and vetted only on EDI and not based upon science. That has never happened to me in 15 years of my being a professional scientist in Canada. And to the best of my knowledge, it has never happened in the Western Anglophone society in 100 years of public funding of science. So referring to these 10, 15 years you've been doing this work, I assume that you have been applying for grants over the past 10 years and you have successfully gotten them for similar projects. Precisely. So I've been here since 2003, so a little over 15 years. I have raised about $7 million in that time period. Uh, some proposals are funded, some proposals are not funded, but you keep on writing away. And I've been quite successful. I've been successful most recently with an internationally competitive corporate proposal. And in that one, the corporate proposal, there was no asking for EDI. They simply wanted to know what your science was and how your science would offer a value proposition to the company that was funding us. I was funded. I'm the only person at McGill, the third person in Canada that was funded by this uh, uh, program by Sony Corporation of Japan. And that's very nice because they only asked for scientific and technical merits. But in the, in, in the Canadian uh, funding agencies in the last one year, they have begun asking for EDI. American agencies too. I don't know if they're as far ahead as we are in Canada, but right now we're quite far ahead in Canada in requiring EDI, and that's only increasing. Uh, so two different grants a year apart. The second one was NSERC. Uh, the previous one was a different category. I is it by chance that these two grants have the same EDI lens to them, or there is a governing body that, that oversees the instructions for both of these grants, and then like a, a rule would have come down to include this? Where, where did this come from? Well, I am not sure the, the specific details of which organizations are coupled, but I would suggest that probably there's science bureaucrats that are coupled with the, with the government and they're deciding how we're going to distribute science funds. Those science funds have historically been distributed because we want to beat the Russians in Sputnik. We want to cure cancer. We want to build an internet. We want to make the economy a better place. We want to educate uh, uh, people to be scientifically literate. Those are the things that the scientific organizations would sell to the government and the taxpayers and then the scientific organizations would distribute money to scientists based upon science only right now have they begun to do it in the last one year maybe two years where they ask for edi and that's that's a highly new thing it's highly irregular it's highly anomalous beating the soviets curing cancer pretty cool things, pretty cutting edge things. I understand that your recent grant applications have been about some cutting edge things as well to do with laser science. In layman's terms, can you explain uh, what the cool thing is you're working on right now? I would be happy to. This is in fact, my great love is uh, my ability to do science. It's a great pleasure. It's a privilege in the true sense of the word that we get to discover things. So in my field, what I do is to do the equivalent of building a better microscope or telescope. But rather than building a better microscope or telescope, my objective is to build a better clock from monitoring very fast things or making very fast movies of things moving. So, for example, if you wanted to watch a bullet uh, burst through an apple, you'd have a very fast camera. What we do is use very fast, even faster cameras like laser pulses to measure the motion of electrons. We're wow. interested in the motion of electrons because they're moving around in photovoltaics, they're moving around in displays and transistors, and those electrons are moving around the at the speed of 
a trillionth of a second or a quadrillionth of a second. So you have to have a very fast camera. So our objective is to create lasers, laser-based clocks that can measure motions down to quadrillionths of a second. And in the aspect of doing so, we hope to understand the physics and chemistry of how to make materials for our energy future. Wow. So I know nothing about this, but I'm going to wager that the practical um, applications of this, should it prove successful, are, are pretty wide reaching and could be of benefit to a variety of sectors? The practical applications span from renewable energy to flat panel displays to white lighting to, uh, to, uh, to medical imaging to telecommunications. There's many, many, many applications for the work that we do. And that's why we have been funded at a very nice level by the Canadian government. So the Canadian government has been very generous to us for 15 years, and I'm very grateful for their financial support. What I do take exception to is they're asking me to prove my merits as a social engineer to give selective empathy to some people over others. And I don't take kindly to that. Is it fair to say that this EDI prism, uh, which has excluded you from getting this recent round of funding, is somewhat slowing down the progress that you could make in these various sectors that you've just identified? It is absolutely slowing down the progress. As a case in point, I and my colleagues in science now have to spend our time learning how to write an EDI section because the EDI questionnaires were written by government bureaucrats in gender studies and grievance studies and things like that. So these non-scientists who are social justice warriors are now tasking we scientists to be social justice warriors when we're not. That's literally the opposite of what we are. We're mostly driven by fairness, equality, classical liberal principles of treating people as individuals, and that just comes to us naturally. Well, the thing that we have to spend our time doing is doing science and writing proposals and learning how to do new science. We can't do that anymore because now we're spending our time learning how to write EDI proposals. I myself am wasting my time learning how to write EDI proposals. So some bureaucrat will say, now you can be judged for scientific merit. Dr. Kabambadi, when you wrote those EDI sections in the grant last year and this year, well, I guess I should ask, did you write them? Did you just leave them blank? Uh, oh, no. Did you write them to the best of your ability and they, they, it just wasn't deemed sufficient? How did it work? That's a great question. And I've seen on Reddit, for example, especially university students will say, I must have tried to sabotage my own proposal or maybe <laughs> colleagues would say, maybe I didn't even write anything at all. And why would I, after spending all my life, my young life, trying to become a scientist. Now my adult life is spent being a scientist. I spend, I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking about how I can write proposals and write more papers and get better experiments going. Why would I sabotage myself? That would be absurd. Right. I tried to write the best EDI section I could that was ethically consistent with my values. And my values are treating people as equals and basically distilling what Martin Luther King taught us in the 60s. But apparently that wasn't good enough. So I literally tried to say I was going to help anyone and everyone. I've actually done so in the past. I have a long history in my group of helping people and mentoring people of all walks of life. And I will continue to do the same. The only thing you have to do is have interest in the work that we do and want to work hard. But apparently that was the kiss of death because I said I'm interested in people based upon their mutual interest and ability. And if all you have is interest and ability, I will take you in. 
But the key point is I'm not supposed to be interested in interest in an ability. I'm supposed to teach people who don't want to be scientists to be scientists. Hmm. Do you think they if were I don't looking... do that, if I don't do that, then somehow I am somehow responsible for creating a bigoted world where scientists are only a small subset of humanity. Were they looking for qualitative statements about how you're going to push, I don't know, you know, anti-colonialist sentiment in it? Were they looking for quantitative statements about quotas for research assistance? What, what do you think? Well, I don't think what what would give you a, a perfect quotas. grade? And I think what they were looking for is the irony of it is I personally could pass by all these so-called EGI requirements based upon my own externalities, but that doesn't matter. My own group is highly diverse, but that doesn't matter. Apparently, what you have to do is pledge allegiance to the instructions given to you of how you're supposed to enforce EDI. It is literally a pledge of allegiance, and if you do not restate their words and explain in detail how you will fulfill that pledge, then you will be cut. How has this arisen? Because you seem to be a little bit, you know, surprised and kind of flummoxed about where it even came from. I know you've known it's been around for a year because you had to do it in the in the one a year ago. But it's like, who actually put this in place? What are the actual parameters? What do they really want me to say? I mean, it seems like it's this it's this very odd kind of amorphous thing that's going on right now. Well, I would say I'm not surprised. And in hmm. fact, I have been monitoring these sort of tendencies since what I was a freshman in college in the USA in 1988. In 1988, when I was 18 years old, I first saw a rise of the politically correct movement amongst my peers. And they started taking courses in gender studies and grievance studies that were very new in 1990. And now those people, 30 years later, are tenured professors and bureaucrats and writers right. for magazines. So my peers are 50 years old, and some of them majored in women's studies and African-American studies and anti-colonial studies and all these other things. And they don't know how to think. They only know how to view, feel in terms of victimology and oppression. And what they view, we scientists, as are colonial, heterosexual, patriarchal oppressors, in part, that's the worst case scenario. The best case scenario is we're just bigots who've kept other people away from science. When in fact, science is an open club. If you can join in, you can join in just like chess, just like violin. It's not, ex it's exclusive in the sense that it's hard to do, but it's not exclusive in that anyone who can do it is welcome. I also get the impression that the sciences don't particularly suffer from an equity, diversity, and inclusion deficit. Like, it seems like, is this a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist? I think it's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist because people have perceived there's a problem that science is mostly done by men, and of the men, it's mostly Jews and Asians. I mean, I used to work in a fiber optic startup company where I go to very large industrial conferences and in those fiber optic industrial conferences where there were 10,000 people enough to make a good average it seemed like about a third were asian a third were a third were asian men a third were jewish men a third were white men and the 10% were everyone else from all over the world i mean of all walks of life all gender whatever it might be but like basketball it turns out physics and, and 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 computer science and math are not equally distributed amongst all people for whatever reason i'm not even going to go and address that problem because that's too much of a, of a of a of a touchy subject but the simple fact of the matter is people have different interests 
at the very least, and if certainly maybe in different abilities, we should be able to let people do what they want to do. As a case in point, I'm an Indian immigrant, and my father, uh, I was born in India, but my father immigrated us, and most Indian immigrants go into electrical engineering because that's a great way to immigrate to the first world. Chinese might go into physics, other people might go into medicine, if you're, if you're an African American, maybe you'll go into business, but people, if you're poor, if you want to lift yourself up, you'll find a logical and reasonable way to do it within your skill set. No one needs to be helped by some social justice warriors with good intentions that are trying to take away human liberty, agency, and accountability. Now, Professor, I know you've said before in a National Post story on your situation that you're certainly not unsympathetic uh, to people who have concerns with racism and you have uh, experienced racism yourself. Is this an issue that persists in your field right now? Would you say that there is uh, racism in the sciences uh, such that there needs to be some sort of formal intervention right now? Absolutely not. I would say science is literally the least racist enterprise in all of human existence for a simple other than possibly professional sports. And the reason is in professional sports and science and chess, you can tell who's better than and worse than the other person. And everyone wants the best person to succeed. And it's a high, high, highly meritocratic individualistic culture more so than any other culture like politics like business like medicine like car sales like being a nurse whatever human enterprise we scientists are the most driven by individual excellence and meritocracy so it seems offensive and absurd that other people are trying to judge us why shouldn't we judge them professor since you started speaking out on this issue what has been the reception and the feedback that you have received from others in your field? The feedback I first received was from the National Post article. I was getting like 100 emails in my inbox a day, and uh, they were all uniformly, glowingly positive. But the more important point is the bandwidth of the people response, the responding was astronomical. It's not just that I was only being written to by conservative, racist, old white men who are heterosexual, patriarchal, homophobes, or God knows what, <laughs> what the social justice warriors will complain about. I received a voicemail from a little old black lady saying that I'm a little old black lady and I've you know, tried to work hard and this, that, and the other, and I, I support you. I thought, I, I didn't know who she was. I could tell it was a little old lady, and she specified her race after that. I received voicemails from a lot of old people, from young people. I received emails from professors, from graduate students, from liberals, from conservatives, from immigrants, from Canadians, from Americans, from Russians. I received emails from all over the world, in fact, of people saying, I agree with you. Thank you for speaking up. And it's hard for me to speak up, but hopefully it's easier now. Thanks to people like me saying I've had enough of this cultural revolution. So the responses on email have been uniformly positive. The responses from my colleagues have been positive. I have presented an EDI uh, lecture at our most recent chemistry department staff meeting, faculty meeting, and that went positively last week. And I would say the only thing is the administration has not really replied to me at all because the, the role of the university administration, like the government bureaucrats, is to maintain the status quo. They created the status quo and we dissident scientists are questioning the status quo. 
Professor, do you have any redress to being rejected for this grant? I appreciate you've acknowledged that you win some, you lose some. I know you don't feel entitled to receiving these funds, but I know you're frustrated that uh, this was the criteria for rejection. Is there a way that you can go back and say, you know, come on, guys, I think we're all acknowledging this is a bit silly. Can we work something out? Yes and no. I am in the process of working with my university officers to help me write a better EDI section so my second proposal can at least make it the scientific review and hopefully get funded. So that is the short-term goal because I, as a scientist, needs government research funds to live. Sure, there's corporate research funds, but that's very rare. Government research funds are the vast majority, and especially in my field, so I need them to live and continue to work and be a scientist. If I can continue to be a scientist, then I can also be outspoken about these issues. So in parallel, I will be outspoken with the general public about these issues of EDI in science, and hopefully they will not punish me as a result. I think if they tried to punish me as a result, that would look really bad. The optics would look really bad. So you've said that the response has been uh, very diverse in terms of uh, the different people it's coming from, in terms of the positive response. Has there been any negative response? Because I feel like uh, professors who initially spoke out about things in the academy, uh, there were attempts to sort of sideline them, shelve them, pigeonhole them into a certain category. Uh, Have you suffered anything such as that so far? I have received no negative response, but I have, and I was initially... Uh, motivated to speak based upon a colleague at University of Chicago by the name of Dorian Abbott, who was canceled by MIT for his public lecture. And so I've been in contact with Professor Dorian Abbott, and I think he put me in touch with the National Post. And Dorian Abbott is a white man, and he gets a lot of flack saying that somehow he's not an ally. You would look silly if you did that to me. That's also why I wanted to come out guns a-blazing saying, look, I've experienced Hmm more racism than these kids could possibly comprehend with their microaggressions. But I want I'm not a victim and I want to treat people like individuals. So I can get away with that. I have a thick skin and I have a instant defense that others might not have, which is the reason why I'm speaking out. Having said that, the people who are most social justice warriory are the students and the professors of grievance studies who educate them. Some of the students on the McGill Reddit would say, oh, gee, why is this guy whining? Why is he sabotaging his career? Why doesn't he care about equity, diversity, and inclusion? Why doesn't he care about minorities failing to recognize that I've probably lived far worse than I can imagine? It's just I try to treat people like Martin Luther King taught me. Uh, Professor, I appreciate you're saying you don't want to be a victim, but I do want to ask you, uh, you talk about these instances of racism that you have experienced. Do you mean in the academy, in your professional life, or, or, or in your personal life? No, out mostly about society? as a youth. I was a kid in Minnesota in, ni- in the 1970s, and being an Indian, I could pass for black, I could pass for Native American, I could pass for Mexican, I could pass back for Muslim, pass for Arab. So I... In, I, I, I experienced a lot of racism as a child in the playground, and that was quite traumatizing, and taught me how to view people as individuals. Then later on as an adult, I've been targeted whether by the police or whether by the the, 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 the US border patrol or whether by whether I go to airports. But like I said, I have a thick skin and I think most people mean well and I think the vast majority in life, I've, I've met people from all over the world, the vast majority of people are not racist. They treat people as equal, some people do, but I, I'm, I'm willing to view people as uh, as individuals, but certainly I've experienced a lot, and I think that has enabled me to 
want to rise above this tendency to put people in boxes and bins. And I believe the woke social justice warriors are now doing the very same thing the racists did 100 years ago by putting people boxes and bins. Do you think those problems are, are, are getting better and worse? The things you allude to, I take it referring to things like, you know, driving while black, as they call it, or driving while brown, or to your point of the airport, you know, post 9-11, okay, here's a brown gentleman, you know, maybe Al-Qaeda, better check his luggage. Like, you, you mean those sorts of things? And, and are they are they still I sort of the same? I think they're getting a lot better. And I think anyone who doesn't think they're getting a lot better is absurd. I was a kid in the 1970s, and I saw stuff as a kid. I experienced stuff as a kid. My dad and mom experienced racism in the 1970s. It is nothing like in the 1970s in the year 2020. I have multiracial kids. My kids are half Caucasian, half Indian, and the likelihood of them experiencing any form of racism to me is, is so ridiculous, so improbable that my feeling is I want you to have thick skin and be tough and have agency and accountability and have a spine so you don't go around worrying about at least frankly, trivial things that are not a big deal in 2020. Having said that, there do happen on occasion. We know of the case, for example, the extreme cases of, say, George Floyd and those things, other other things happen. I've experienced things myself, but those are highly statistically unlikely. We'll be back in just a moment after this message with more full comment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Do you think that this EDI push is something that is just here for a little blip in time? It's a year or two or three and they've acknowledged, oh, okay, uh, people like Dr. Kamampati, they have a point. Maybe we should roll this back. Or do you think this is something that, that if people don't oppose it, it'll be caked into the system and problematic for, for many years to come? I think we are dealing with the rise of a cultural revolution that is equivalent to Marxism and communism. I think it's that dangerous. If you listen to the, uh, the writings and the speakings of Jordan Peterson and Gad Saad, they will tell you the same story in great detail, and I very much endorse them. I agree with them. I correspond with them, and I think we're on the same page. I think that what has happened is somewhere since 1990, the academics went loony with their grievance studies. And since 1990, they have then indoctrinated a small subset of students and children to become woke social justice warriors. Those are the millennials, the Gen Zs that we see at the university today that are causing cancel culture. I think this is a very big affair. I think that the culture of grievance studies in academia has given rise to how we fund STEM, as I've seen in my case, but also how we do how we run universities, from Hollywood to mainstream media to education. All of these cultural forces have been influenced by the grievance studies people of academia between 1990 and 2020. So this was 30 years in the making. This is not an accident. And if you think that this EDI stuff or this woke stuff is just an accident that'll come and go. No, no, no. It's been building for 30 years. And now these people have a lot of power and they're not going to want to get rid of it. And they are not fair people. They're not logical people. They do not think ethically. So we are in a cultural war. What then should people do or say? What would you recommend they do who are hearing what you're saying and going, well, I don't like the fact this EDI stuff 
is getting in the way of, of things like Dr. Kambati's research that are holding us back from having this great laser science uh, that can positively benefit society. Should they write letters? Should they talk about it to their politicians? I mean, wh what do you think is the momentum required to, to make uh, whoever, whichever bureaucrat is putting this rule in place to say, hey guys, let's just roll this back. I think those are excellent ideas. In the emails that I've received, a number of people said they will write to their government officials, their MPs, even Trudeau, and so forth. And Or if they're a university, they'll write to, the, write to the heads of their university. I think the idea is we should be unafraid. We should not be cowards. We should stand up to these people and say, if you want to call me out, I will call you out. It's a two-way street. I will not be judged by you. That will not happen. This is not judgment day. And if it goes, it goes both ways. So what I'm going to do as a civilian, as a taxpayer, is to write my congressman. I'm going to write my MP. I'm going to write my politicians and say, I'm not happy with this business because some politicians just took the ball and ran with it without telling anyone. There was no debate. No one actually discussed, do we want EDI in STEM? No one actually, we were discussing affirmative action in the 1970s when I was a kid. And now all of a sudden we have quotas. We have outright quotas. And I can tell you outright that I've seen advertisements for tenure track positions at faculty, uh, for, from faculty at universities where you cannot apply if you're a straight white man. You cannot apply. And how do I know this? One of my neighbors is a straight white man who constantly tells me this. He says, here's another position I cannot apply for. So people tell me these things. I have a lot of colleagues showing me how insane things are, and it is out of apartheid. Here's another example I'd like to get your thoughts on from the Journal of the Royal Society of Chemistry, I guess an international journal, probably one of the top, it sounds like. Uh, in its field, a Brock University professor put forward one paper in that which caused a bit of a turmoil and then it led to the Royal Society of Chemistry Journal revising its rules. They now have a new rule that says uh, that um, th I guess they cannot really include or must uh, heavily edit any content that could reasonably offend someone on the basis of their age, gender, race, sexual orientation, religious or political beliefs, marital or parental status, physical features, national origin, social status, or disability. And I got this uh, from a guest op-ed at National Post by scientist Lawrence Krauss. He's talking about this story here. He goes on to say, you look at that description. I mean, that pretty much means you can't really talk about anything. And also in science, sometimes you need to delve into issues that could reasonably offend someone based on this quite significant laundry list, including well, that, marital status. That's exactly a case in point. And I think you're referring to Professor Thomas Hudlicky at yes. Brock, who was uh, canceled by a bunch of social justice warriors. And I've written in support of Thomas Hudlicky. I think he was treated very, very barbarically in, in a vulgar and barbaric, barbaric way. I support Thomas Hudlicky as well and Lawrence Krauss's writings as well. Um, so that's an example of the cancellation. I think it's actually worse than what that RSC journal says, because when they say you cannot cause any verbal harm to people based upon race, gender, class, caste, whatever it might be. It's actually not true. That's a lie. You can be offensive to men and white people and heterosexuals. You cannot be offensive to women. You cannot be offensive to certain minorities. You can be offensive to Jews and Asians, but you cannot, you've not, so it's highly selective. When they say you cannot be offensive, you must monitor your feelings and the offense is registered based upon the offended party, not you. It's highly, highly, highly hypocritical and asymmetric. If you are a straight white man, you do not count. I'm not a straight white man, so I can tell you that. 
Professor, when you said that the responses you got were largely positive, you cited a number of older individuals. I know you've said that people uh, within your faculty and you had a faculty meeting where there wasn't particularly uh, big complaints about what you were saying, but you did allude to there being a Reddit chat where a couple people sort of said, oh, well, you know, what's the complaint about so forth. And it seemed like they were undergrads. And when you reference cultural revolution, the big thing around that decades ago in communist China was the young turning on the older. What's going on with undergrads right now? We see a lot of bizarre scenes from American universities where an undergrad feels they are entitled to completely cancel their own professor, to, to publicly go and throw invective at them because they haven't fulfilled whatever it is, what they determine to be EDI criteria. What do you see and what do you hear perhaps from other colleagues about the undergrad, uh, undergrad experience? I think that's 100% true. I think the undergraduates started going crazy around 2010 with the social justice politically correct movement. Like I said, it started in 1990 when I was an undergrad. Fast forward 30 years, it's people like my peers' children, my peers' students. Those are the ones who started going really woke in the year 2010. And the phrase I heard from students was this phrase, check your privilege. Mm. Now that's a common phrase and privilege is a common phrase. But in 2010, privilege was first being used to deny the humanity of some people instead of saying, like the American Express commercial, privilege is something you earn. I'm a middle-aged man with a nice career. I believe I've earned privileges. That's what I think of as a privilege. Uh, I think going to the first class lounge is a privilege. That's a privilege. Privilege is not being born white or male or not handicapped. Th that's just being born human. So what the social justice warrior students started to do in the year 2010 is to dehumanize people by saying, check your privilege, which is a very Marxist way of thinking about things like the Marxists were doing this to the wealthy farmers uh, in the Soviet Union 100 years ago. So fast forward now 10 more years, it's the year 2020. The students have now created that prevailing culture and the professors and the administration are now afraid of students. But what's happened is students have changed because the students of 2014 were the ones who were throwing tantrums and throwing riots every time they felt triggered and they had their safe space broken. But by 2021, I think students are now hungry for reality again and sanity again and rigor and scholarship again and not having safe spaces. So I think what's actually happening is that I think the young people are finally having enough of this. And I think that there might be a swing away from this woke politically correct culture that has been taking place for 30 years. I see it in my own kids who are teenage boys and they are anti-woke. Their friends are anti-woke. So hmm. to me, most teenage boys are anti-woke nowadays. Have adults failed the young? Because when I see these videos of a professor or a dean apologizing in the public square to a mob of undergrads yelling at them. And those videos exist. There's a few of them from American universities. I think, well, you know, this is awful. These kids are doing this. Where are their parents? Uh, why do they think they can get away with this? But I also feel like that professor, that dean is failing them by not saying, kids, stop it, get in line, shut up, go back to class and study that the that the professors and that the particularly administration are indulging them in this nonsense. I 100% agree with you, and I wasn't alive in the 60s when apparently the campus radicals took over, but now I hear about it, and I think that what happened is that a lot of those 
professors who let the campus radicals take over, then those campus radicals became professors. Right. And right. so professors and administrators. So there's a lot of those people in academia, the leftover campus radicals and the former Marxists and the uh, people like that. And they tend to run the administration because the people who don't run the administration are the people busy doing actual work, people busy doing actual science. So real scientists like me don't want to be part of administration because we'd rather be doing science and teaching. And that's the end of it. So the administrators are the ones who run out of things to do and they want to create a little fiefdom based upon their Marxist ideas. I'm always surprised by how large the administration is getting, how much empire building there is, how many random activities universities get up to that are really out of their traditional wheelhouse these days. And you go, what on earth are they doing? There just seems to be a lot of busybody shenanigans going on. And maybe this is just an extension of it. It is very much an extension of it. It's far worse in the United States where you have private universities. And so there, for example, the number of professors used to be some fraction of the uh, of, 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 of the staff. And now that fraction has dropped off precipitously because they have many more EDI staff. And those EDI staff often make, you know, have offices that cost tens of millions of dollars a year. And there are people at American Enterprise Institute that quantify all these tendencies of how universities have been taken over by bureaucratic EDI offices at great cost. And they are now running the universities because it's a bit like a HR organization running a startup company. The startup company should run the HR organization, not the other way around. Well, right now, the human resource organization and the uh, and those and equivalents at the university are saying, here's how the university should run. It should be a safe space, not for all people, but only for some people. Do you think there's a lot of people who just aren't aware of the extent of this and they're not aware of how bad it is. I, I think about how these days there are more and more sessions in, in schools and in corporations that we would call implicit bias training or anti-bias training. And one hears that at first and they go, well, isn't this just talking about, you know, how we shouldn't judge people based on the color of their skin and we should all get along. You go, well, hold, this is very different than having a an anti-racism workshop or sitting the kids down and saying, look, you know, some people have two moms, two dads, people come from here, they come from there. It's all good. We're all people. Let's all get along. Okay. Agreed. Agreed. All right, let's roll. This is very different where it's fostering a lot of ideas that yes, you have, you know, deep seated racism in you and we need to get out and you go, what are you talking about? I mean, the, the anti-bias training, it's very different than I think a lot of people believe it to be. Very much so. I was given an anti-bias training by our diversity dean and it was happening at a faculty meeting for hiring. And we were given the implicit association test to study implicit bias and identify the implicit biases that we might have against women and certain minorities and certain homos certain sexual minorities but never the implicit biases that women that might have against men or 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 uh, Chinese might have against Japanese, or Indians might have against blacks, or blacks might have against Indians. Instead of judging human nature, it was very selective. And so then the Dean started giving us these questions saying, raise your left hand or right hand if you agree or disagree with the statement. And then we're all laughing, we think, ah, look how our implicit bias is, this, that, and the other. I sat there with my arms folded across my chest, glaring at the Dean saying, on over my dead body, I refuse to raise my hand. And we know in Nazi Germany, people were forced to raise her hand and I'm going to make go there and make that analogy and I will not raise my hand for someone asking me to go against my most deeply held beliefs and go against reason logic and evidence and accept magical thought I will not raise my hand and I did that and uh, I was the only one who sat there but all of my 
very white progressive colleagues were raising and lowering their hands in, in agreement as if they were going through training like in Marxism. So where does it end? You've said that this is deep-rooted in the system and it's been decades in the making, but you also referenced how among the teens, things are a little different. There are some that are going along to get along, but there are some who are saying, this isn't working for us anymore, and they're saying no to all of this. So perhaps we're coming to a head? I hope we're coming to a head, and I hope that the place where we come to a head is in science, because we scientists have largely been ignoring how the academic grievance studies have been coming for us. They're hunting us down. They're hunting us down like like the poor uh, uh, proletariat in the Soviet Union hunted down the rich farmers in Ukraine who had the kulaks and had enough money to live off of. They social justice warriors are hunting us down in science because of jealousy and collectivism and victimology, which are the worst of human tendencies. But having said that, I think now we scientists know they're coming for us. And so we'll stand up and say, hey, look, we're the guys who make your lasers. We're the guy who make your telecom. We're the guy who make your or the woman who makes your cure for cancer. We're the people who make you know, your rockets. And we can't do that anymore. Do you want us to continue doing that? Because we're, our arms are tied behind our back. And they're coming for us and they're coming for you. Soon they're coming for you in your employment places. So the HR organizations will be giving you your implicit bias tests. I've heard my colleagues who work for financial companies, my colleagues who who are civilians, already getting uh, sensitivity training, racial biasness training. Uh, uh, That book by Robin DeAngelo, White Fragility, they're having Robin DeAngelo come in and give lectures at various finance companies in Montreal. I mean, this is ridiculous. It's offensive. Professor Kamabadi, what would you say to those who say, well, the whole point of this is just to make sure we're all getting along, to make sure there's not tensions in society. Uh, Maybe Ms. D'Angelo's book overstates a few sentences here and there, but you know, come on, what's the big deal? Why can't we have a few of these sessions once a year uh, in a corporation? How would you respond to that? I would say that in a corporation and in a university, in a professional environment, that is not the place to teach you what to think and how to behave as a human being. Where you should have learned that is from your parents, your church, or from your own self, or from your literature. You should have learned how to be a decent human being. But if I go work for Intel, Intel is not there to tell me how to be a decent human being. Intel is there to tell me, make sure to do your job and don't be a jerk. If you're a jerk, sure, we're going to call you out. Don't harass other people. But that's about it. Intel is not there or or, or CNN or whoever I work for is not there to tell me how to live my life, what my values should be. Is there an opportunity to flip this back on these individuals then? Because the problem with something called EDI, equity, diversity, inclusion, if you say, oh, I'm not so sure about this. I don't know if this provision should be in here. You're against diversity and inclusion. I can't believe you said that. You've outed yourself as the scum of the earth. And then people go, okay, well, I, I better not talk talk up about it, even though that you know, that's not my That is precisely what happened when I presented at my recent faculty meeting is one of my colleagues who's a straight white male said, of course you want to be for EDI. It sounds good to be for equity, diversity, and inclusion. I didn't want to overtake the conversation, but I can answer that question now. EDI was invented a few years ago. It's an invention. It did not happen in classical liberalism. It did not happen in in the Enlightenment. It did did not happen when the American democracy was created. It's a very recent phenomenon. It was made up and you can question it. My colleagues Dorian Abbott and Ivan Marinovich have already come up in Newsweek article with an alternative called Merit, Fairness and Equality, MFE, 
merit, fairness, and equality, which is probably more consistent with classical liberal principles of being egalitarian. I stand for merit, fairness, and equality. I do not stand for equity, diversity, and inclusion. Not only do I not stand for equity, diversity, and inclusion, I make a moral case that equity, diversity, and inclusion could be actually synonymous with ignorance, bigotry, and hate. Mm -hmm. Who's going to say I stand for ignorance, bigotry, and hate? No one's going to say that. But if I say to you, there's basically an indistinguishable characteristic between EDI and ignorance, bigotry, and hate, then you're going to say, uh-oh, let me start questioning myself. So the key point is don't defend, attack back. If someone says, how are you not for EDI? Then you say, you know what I'm for? I'm for democracy. I'm for freedom. I'm for human liberties. I'm for the principles of American and French democracy, not for this communistic EDI. Because, Professor, when you said the phrase jerk, that actually really stuck out to me because I would never think to tell someone who I've never really spoken to, I don't really know them, you're going to have to sit in this session that gets to your implicit biases and talks about how you're actually a racist or sexist or homophobic or what have you, such that it's even going to get in the way of you doing your science. I mean, I would just never think of saying, you know, we got to get that guy in this session here. You know, we got to sit him down because that's kind of a jerk thing to do. Bingo. Bingo. It's, it, it, it is restraining human freedom, restraining human liberty, moralizing to other people. And uh, I get back to ancient things that you might have learned from the, from, the, from the Ten Commandments. I'm not even Christian, but I understand religions. And one of these things is let, you know, let he who was without sin throw the first stone. Another one is he in glass houses should not throw stones, both involving throwing stones. And they both are the sort of things that we should remember now. Uh, these EDI people, the woke people, are behaving like the religious moral majority did a hundred years ago, trying to shame people into behavior. And it used to happen from religion, and in Islamic countries it still happens from religion, and we are having our own woke Taliban in the Anglophone West. Wow. Dr. Patton Jolly Kumbambadi, you're a professor in the chemistry department at Montreal's McGill University. You have a lot of really fascinating things to say about this great research you're doing uh, into laser science. And I wish people could hear more from you about the great breakthroughs that you're doing. Unfortunately, or fortunately, you're now having to come and tell this story because of these policies that are, that are blocking you from being able to be as productive in this great research that you could be. I thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Anthony. All the best. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. Full Comment is taking a short break for the holidays, but we'll be back at the beginning of January with some must-listen conversations with fascinating guests. It's been a great year, and we thank you for listening and wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays.